We are delighted to be joined by distinguished professor of New Testament, biblical interpretation and systematic theology at Westminster Theological Seminary, Vern Poitras. Hello and welcome to Exposit the Word, Vern. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, thank you. Before we get stuck into the questions, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, I think people would be interested in knowing uh, that I grew up in a Christian family. Uh, we went to church regularly and the Bible was proclaimed, the gospel was proclaimed in that church. Uh, I made a commitment to Christ <clears throat> when I was nine years old at a church camp. And that was real. Uh, yeah, I knew that I was a sinner. I knew that I needed Christ to save me from sin. Mm. And and I uh, I went forward. That they were the camp had that kind of uh, system to do it. Yeah. Uh, and and then it was a Baptist uh, church. So then I went and I was in a baptism class, and they taught me a little more. So that was the beginning. But you know, in your nine, you you still have a lot of growing to do. So yeah. th that's, uh, there's a lot more to the story, but that's a sketch. Yeah, brilliant, thank you. Vern, you're here today to talk about your new book. So give us an overview of that book, The Mystery of the Trinity, A Trinitarian Approach to the Attributes of God. Yes, well, the first few chapters, actually I describe what I'm gonna do in the first, the introduction. And then the, the first few chapters, I talk about some of the attributes of God. So it's his absoluteness, his infinity, uh, his immensity, which means he's, he, uh, the implication is he's everywhere present, his eternity, his uh, knowing everything, and his simplicity. I, I picked those attributes. There, there's a long list yeah. that you could add to. I picked those because they are associated more with his uh, God's absoluteness, his transcendence. And I wanted to affirm those in particular. And then I have a discussion of the Trinity, a brief discussion showing uh, the biblical basis. And then uh, a section uh, which might be surprising to some people on how God communicates to us and what's the meaning of uh, the language in the Bible and one of the points is that this communication is Trinitarian in basis because the Son, the second person of the Trinity is also called the Word. And so that relation between the Father and the Word is, I believe, in back of and the foundation, ultimate foundation for uh, the communication that we get in the Bible. Yeah. Uh, so we talk about there basically the truthfulness of that communication so that uh, and and people can get astray believe it or not uh, there because uh, they think well god is uh, is inaccessible and uh, a language is not fitting medium well but if god uses it he knows what he's doing yeah <laughs> so yeah. that doesn't mean that we can exhaust uh, who God is, that we can understand him as he understands himself, but the understanding can be genuine. So, but then after those two things, the rest of the book is really, or three things, uh, the attributes of God, the Trinity, and language. The rest of the book is on the relationship of the attributes to the Trinity, 
because I think there are some things that can be done that have not been done uh, completely uh, worked out in the history of theology. Mm. And it turns out that if you try to do the attributes just on the basis of the unity of God, you can make mistakes uh, that, that put your understanding of the attributes in tension with yeah. the Trinity. Yeah. So that's basically what happens in the book in a short uh, summary. Yeah. What is the simplest way to understand the Trinity? Well, I've heard somebody say, uh, summarize that God is three persons. So the, the singular, the singular uh, verb is, is an indirect affirmation that there is only one God. At the same time, it's three persons. Each person is God, not a part of God, but fully God. Uh, but when you say the simplest way to understand the Trinity, one of the points needs to be made is that we never can understand the Trinity comprehensively. We can't get to the bottom. We can't make it transparent to human minds. Why not? Because God is infinite. And moreover, there's nothing in the created world that's an exact model for the Trinity. Because in the nature of the case, the created world is created and God is the creator. Yes. So yes. you can't expect to completely penetrate this. You can understand, as it were, up to a point, you can have true knowledge, but it's never comprehensive knowledge. And that's one of the reasons why there's continuing controversy over the Trinity to this day. Most of the heresies involve people wanting to have a knowledge uh, that is transparent to us, that is completely without mystery. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that's one important thing to, to, to say about it. And then beyond that, I want to say, read the Gospel of John. Uh, the Gospel of John, perhaps more than any other part of the Bible, has more about the Trinity, and you can see the affirmations uh, as you read through the Gospel of the one God and uh, the distinctiveness of each of the three persons. Yeah. You might have just touched on that, Vern, but what is the biblical basis for the doctrine of the Trinity? Right. Well, the Gospel of John is one yeah. place, but I found as I entered into this study that uh, I wanted to do it simply. So I I gave people verses that affirm that God is, there's only one true God. Yeah. And then verses that say the Father is God and the Son is God and the Spirit is God. Uh, and, but then you also have to have, ver have verses that make it plain that the Father is distinct from the Son and that the, the Son is distinct from the Spirit. So, for instance, in John 16, it says that Jesus says that uh, I will send the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father. Well, you send someone who is distinct from you. Uh, so th that affirms the distinction between the Son and the Spirit, and also he proceeds from the Father. So you've got all uh, three persons distinguished in one verse. Yeah. 
so that's an example of that kind of thing. So once you have those affirmations, you have most of the of the things that go into the doctrine of the Trinity. There's there's one other piece that uh, people bring up, and that is about the kinds of relations between the persons. So that verse indicates that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and that he's sent by the Son. And those things are irreversible relations. When was the word Trinity first applied to God in Christianity? I'm told that it was by Tertullian, and, and, uh, who lived late second century. But the, the thing is, the word Trinity doesn't appear, occur in the Bible, but that doesn't mean the doctrine of the Trinity isn't taught. Yeah. If you put together the teachings of quite a few verses, and I mentioned these, the biblical basis, uh, I found after I'd, I'd written it up in a short way that John Owen had already done it too, with more <laughs> verses. Yeah. And, and he, it's inter interesting that he was dealing with a situation where some of his opponents who, who denied the Trinity objected that the word Trinity didn't occur in the Bible. And they objected that certain kinds of technical language to distinguish the persons from the essence, for instance, that those kinds of things didn't occur in the Bible. Mm -hmm. So Owen, in response, uh, he did it by primarily just appealing to these truths of the Bible, which I think are undeniable, right? The things that I've already mentioned. Yeah. You go through those things and you don't have to use a lot of technical terminology to see that indeed there is only one god and that the three persons are distinct from one another yeah yeah what person or persons of the trinity were the people of the old testament interacting with yeah it's a good question because there's a thing called progressive revelation where god does not reveal everything about himself all at once but it's spread over time. And the climactic revelation of who God is, as well as what he does, is in the New Testament with the coming of Christ. So what about the Old Testament? And uh, the fact is that God was always a Trinitarian God. So whenever people interacted with him, they were interacting with all three persons. Yeah. Uh, but the, the full revelation of the mystery of the Trinity hadn't yet to come. So you can see anticipations of the New Testament, but in order to have the full clarity of the doctrine, you have to go to the New Testament. I can illustrate that, for instance, with uh, the doctrine of creation from Genesis 1. Uh, you read that, and the primary emphasis is surely on the fact that there is one true God who created everything. And that's a very necessary emphasis in the ancient Near Eastern world in which the Israelites lived, because most of the people were polytheists. They believed in many gods, and, and they believed in an interaction of the gods, and some of the, the mythological stories had, had uh, explanations of how the world came to be, but it, was, it were gross explanations that involved fights between the gods or sexual intercourse between the gods. I mean, it just blasphemous stuff. Mm. So you can see the importance 
of God straightening things out by saying, look, this is how it happened, one God. But if you read carefully and in the light of later revelation, you can see hints of a differentiation. For one thing, in verse 2 already, in, in the first one is in the beginning, God created heavens and earth. Verse 2 says that the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God. Well, who, who is that? What? <laughs> why, why, why is that expression there? Mm-hmm. Now, well, we know in the light of the New Testament that it's talking about a distinct person of the Trinity, <clears throat> but there's no further explanation. Uh, in verse two of what is the, what is or who is you know this spirit of God and how is he is there a distinction between the spirit of God and God it sounds like there is but it's mysterious the other thing is that God creates by speaking so he says the first act after the world itself is made is he says let there be light and there was light he yeah. speaks. So John in the New Testament then takes up on that and points out in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. So there's two at least indications that he's alluding to the Genesis um, account. The words in the beginning make that pretty obvious, but then in case you didn't notice, right, he goes to talk about the role of the word in creation. Well, what's there in Genesis 1 that corresponds to that? It's this picture of God speaking, and the words that he speaks are in some sense distinct from God himself, because he didn't need to create what he created, right? He speaks in particular ways. So those three things uh, the, the the mention of one God and the mention of the role of the word and the mention of the presence of the spirit of God are, I believe, an anticipation of the Trinity, but it's not all worked out. So I think that people are, are interacting with the Trinitarian God, but it's not uh, as clear as it becomes in the New Testament. There's one other thing, namely that when God meets people, he sometimes appears in human form. Well, that's an anticipation of the incarnation, Mm -hmm. right? Where Christ actually becomes, he takes on human nature, he becomes man. Well, he didn't become man until uh, he he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, right? There's, There's no incarnation in the Old Testament. And yet these appearances, they're temporary appearances, they anticipate, they foreshadow what is to come. So that's another example yeah. of how people are meeting the Trinitarian God. Yeah. Why is the Trinity such a mystery? Yeah, because God is God and we are not. Right? It's a, that would be a short way. I mean, I laugh <laughs> at it, but it's actually a serious challenge, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. To say, to have confidence God is showing who he really is on the one side. and to have humility of saying, I'm never going to understand him on the level that God himself understands yeah, himself. Yeah, yeah. What do we know about the unique characteristics of each member of the Trinity? Well, what we know 
is focused mostly, we think of the Bible, it's focused mostly on how God works to rule the world and how he works to accomplish salvation. And in those activities of God, you do see that everything is done by the one God. And again, that's very important in a polytheistic context. But you also see a mysterious differentiation. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, in Romans 8, 11, it said that the God who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give new life to you through his indwelling spirit. Uh, so there you have the, the resurrection of Christ involving all three persons of the Trinity and not just, as it were, a mishmash with, with no particular uh, differentiation of who is doing what because it's Christ who's raised from the dead, uh, yeah. the, the person of Christ uh, in his human nature, of course. But you can't say that of the other two persons. Uh, who raised him from the dead? Well, the Father did. And by what power? By the whole power, power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, or uh, look, look at our adoption, right? Uh, one of the glorious truths and promises of the New Testament is that we become sons of God or children of God uh, when we're saved. Oh, well, what does that mean? We become sons of the Father. And we become uh, brothers of Christ. And Christ actually uses that language. And, and the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 talks about Christ as our elder brother, uh, that we are to be conformed to his image. And so it's by virtue of Christ being the eternal son that we have the privilege of becoming adopted sons. Yeah. And then in Galatians 4, that's a key passage, uh, along with Romans 8. In Galatians 4, it indicates that the Holy Spirit is sent to dwell within us, and he cries out, Abba, Father. He teaches us the meaning of adoption by his indwelling. And so that, that's, that, that teaching is how, and the voice of the Spirit is how we uh, confess the, that God is our Father. Yeah. So you have those examples. So you see the distinction of the persons. Now that goes back to the fact that forever and ever, they are eternally distinct. Uh, one God, three persons. And the, the doctrine of the Trinity as it was worked out, people talked about an eternal generation of the Son mm. because there's something in back of the incarnation. There's a basis for the fact that the Son and not the Father became incarnate. What's that basis? Well. There's an eternal relation between the Father and the Son. So they talked about eternal generation. They talked about eternal procession of the mm -hmm. Spirit. There's also indication, I believe, that there's eternal love between the persons. So there's activity in God eternally, but we see that most vividly when, when God acts to redeem us. Yeah. And is there a hierarchy within the Trinity? Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> That's a good question. But... The word hierarchy is a is a, a challenging word because it could mean different things, and uh, the Bible makes it clear that each of the three persons is fully God. So you can't be God halfway, as yeah, it were. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
so there's there's complete equality in terms of each person being by nature god but there's also a differentiation of order and i prefer to use that word as as in order not to suggest that there's any kind of uh, of which i say degrees of godhead right there's an order from father to son to spirit which we've already mentioned in talking about the fact that the son is generated by the father and the spirit proceeds from the father and there's western church acknowledged from the son as well though that's more controversial but i think it's based on uh john 16 where the spirit is sent from uh, the son as well as proceeding from the father do all three members of the trinity share one mind or are there three separate minds yeah i'd say one mind because god is one but there's mystery there too because if you say three persons have one mind on a human level and mm. you see we're dealing with analogy right and the problem is if you say three persons have one mind on a human level you could just say that they agree to act together they're of one mind yeah right they, because they they have a common purpose well the unity in god is a much deeper unity than that you don't have three separate persons but each person being fully god uh so so then how do you picture that do you picture a kind of monster of uh the three human bodies with one head joined you know at the neck i mean you of course not right god doesn't have a body we're not thinking about uh an identity with the way we experience personhood at a human level mm -hmm. but i would say this that there uh, the bible testifies to a kind of differentiation in the way in which each person knows everything in a distinctive way uh, Matthew eleven twenty seven says uh, Jesus is talking to the disciples and says, "No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him." Well, the major point shouldn't be lost that we need the Son in order to know the Father. Yeah, we ourselves. Yeah. Uh, but deeper than that is the claim. That there's this unique knowledge of the father knowing the son and the son knowing the father and uh, each is fully god so that's an exhaustive knowledge but it's differentiated mysteriously because each person knows personally he knows the other persons yeah. well how can that take place and you still say there's one mind well there's only one god so there's one mind but there's this differentiation mysteriously i believe in in the way in which the persons engage in that knowledge which is each person knows everything right so it's the same knowledge yeah in that respect but it's differentiated personally well that's a mystery and i can't really get any further than what the bible teaches yeah. which yeah. is yeah. this simultaneity of the personal aspect of knowledge and the comprehensiveness of one God knowing everything. Yeah. What are all three members of the triune God doing right now? And how do they interact with one another? Yeah, well, they love one another. And there's, a, there's this uh, 
doctrine that I believe is correct of eternal generation of the Son, an eternal procession of the Spirit, because God is not subject to time. And so it isn't as if, well, the her one of the heretics, Arius, said there was a time before the Son existed. Uh, but no, that's not right, because everything that's made was made through the Son. That's there in John 1. It's there in in uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, and, and other passages as well, Colossians 1. So, so the Son always existed. So uh, there can't be a time where he came into being. And the mystery is that there's this order of, of from the Father to the Son, or you might say from this God as speaker to the word spoken, that is an eternal reality, but it's not something that unfolds simply within time as we know it, but it's something that surpasses time because God always existed before the world and its, uh, its uh, clock ticks ever existed. Yeah, yeah. Why did Jesus have to leave for the Holy Spirit to come? That's a good question. I'm not sure, <laughs> uh, except there's a, there's a passage that talks explicitly about that in John 16, 7, where Jesus says that if I don't go away, the Spirit will not come to you. Well, he's talking about the fact that he's there in the body, mm. right? They can see him. It's with respect to his human nature. So with respect to his body, he's going to leave them. Why does he have to leave them? in order that he would have the same communion with people everywhere in the world. They think of it as being a necessity. You know, they've had this vivid experience of having Jesus with them in his bodily presence yeah. for, for the period of his public ministry. They'd all experienced that. Hmm. And, and they must have been terrified and, and fearful the, of the, the statement that he was going to leave them. But actually, his presence in the body at one spot in the world was also his absence in the body at any other spot in the world, right? Because he could, as a, as a, according to his human nature, he can only be at one place at a time. Yeah. So he says, I'm going away. Well, that's with respect to his ascension, with respect to his human nature. He's going away that he may sit at the right hand of the Father. And in Acts, it says, having been exalted at the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the Holy Spirit whom he's poured out. So there's a, an operation of salvation that involves the Son's triumph with respect to his human nature. And that seems to be the prerequisite for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in the way that it takes place in Pentecost. Mm. So there, but this is with respect to the, the uh, works of redemption. Uh, God as such is present at all places in all times, but that doesn't mean he's present in grace. Yeah. <laughs> he, yeah. um, uh, we need his grace, we need his reconciliation, we need his forgiveness of sins. It's those things that are accomplished by Christ in the flesh, and having accomplished them, then it is the time to pour out the Holy Spirit. So that's about the best I can do, but 
in the end, you have to say, well, God knows what he's doing. Yeah. <laughs> Whether yeah. we can explain it fully or not. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. We know that the Holy Spirit is God and God cannot be in the presence of sin. Then how can the Holy Spirit dwell in me, a sinner? Yeah, that's a, it's a paradox, isn't it? All I can say is it's because not only the Holy Spirit is holy, but he comes and joins us to Christ who is holy. Yeah. And so yeah. that we are perfectly holy. The doctrine of the justification is about that, right? That we are yeah. perfect in God's sight because of that. But it's also true in Ephesians 4 that, that, he, that God warns us against grieving the Holy Spirit if, if uh, sinful words are coming out of our mouths. So that we have to understand that the Holy Spirit is personal. And as a Holy Spirit, it's fitting that we be holy in our behavior. We're, we're consecrated to God. We're declared to be holy. Yeah. when we first are united to Christ. But then we have to live in a holy manner. So it makes a difference. But it's true that we, we have to have the Holy Spirit in order to be sanctified, in order to grow in Christ. Yeah. So there has to be a way, and it's a way through Christ, by which uh, sin is dealt with, and the Holy God can come and dwell in us. Yeah. Then, to whom should we pray? To the Father or the Son? Jesus or the Holy Spirit? Yes, well, that's a difficult question too. I would say when we pray to God, we pray to the one God. So we are praying, I think, to all three persons at once. But in the New Testament, which is the place where you see more explicitly the differentiation of persons. We can see that most prayers that are not just said is to be prayers to God. The prayers that where there is some explicit differentiation that we pray it, it, most of the time it's the Father to whom we pray. Yeah. Uh, Jesus in the Lord's Prayer, for instance, our Father who who art in heaven or who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Right, so Jesus teaches his own disciples to pray that way. But what makes God our Father? Well, it's Jesus the Son, right? And it's being united to Jesus. And it's having Jesus be our intercessor who makes our prayers accessible. Mm -hmm. So you can say there's still, you can't possibly pray to God in a way that will reach him yeah. without the presence of the Son, and without the Holy Spirit teaching you how to pray, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. But there are also some prayers in the, um, the New Testament that appear to be directed particularly to the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, that's right. It's proper because he is God. Uh, we ought not to pray to anything else than God, because that's dishonoring to yeah. His glory. He says, my glory I give to no other in, in Isaiah 42, I believe it is. Mm. So we pray only to God, but it makes sense then that we pray to Jesus as well because he is God. And similarly, I believe it's, it's, uh, uh, it's uh, within the scope of the general principles of the Bible to pray to the Holy Spirit, though I'm not aware 
of a specific prayer offered to the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit is God. Yeah. So that may it makes sense, but the predominant, as I say, the predominant uh, way of praying is to pray to the Father, of course, through the Son, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So you, yeah. you can't, you can't, uh, even if you're unaware of it, actually, the power of the Trinitarian God is at work in you when you pray. Yeah. Did the early church fathers understand the doctrine of the Trinity? Yes, that's a good question, but I'm not an expert there. Um, I, I think we must realize that that uh, the full working out of the doctrine took time. And so part of the answer is, no, they didn't. If what you mean is, had they worked it all out with the clarity and with the uh, vocabulary that we now have? No, they hadn't. But did they intuitively relate to God as Trinity without having kind of cognitively worked it out? And I would say yes, because nobody can be saved <laughs> unless the Trinitarian God saves them. Yeah, yeah. Can you be a Christian and not believe in the Trinity? Yeah, well, that's a related question, and it's a similar kind of thing in that uh, Christians have to grow in their knowledge of God. And it's one thing to trust God for salvation. It's another thing to have worked out in your minds intellectually what are all the implications. And God destines us to grow in knowledge of himself. And he expects people to grow and not to say, well, now I'm saved. I can just stay an intellectual, a baby Christian my whole life. Why would you want to do that? Because there's so much to, to, to grow in, in fellowship with God. But if you're going to grow, then you're going to grow in all kinds of ways in knowledge of Scripture. And that will include the knowledge of the Trinity. Mm -hmm. But at the beginning, I think some people may have a very simple faith. And it's intuitive. But in the sense, they cannot be a Christian without believing in the Trinity because they believe in the one God, the one true God. Yeah. And that one true God is Trinitarian. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it, the intuition is there, but it just has to be unpacked uh, and clarified. And, and that also means that when people misformulate the doctrine of the Trinity, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are not saved. It may mean that they're not well taught, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? But the way you find out is by, by trying to, to teach them more. And uh, as we read the Bible to learn more, and then some of those things fall away, unless of course somebody entrenches himself in heresy. Mm -hmm. he, he stubbornly refuses to, to uh, conform to biblical teaching. Yeah. And then he's a danger to the church and because, uh, for, for instance, with respect to the deity of Christ, that's one common thing that is often denied by heretics. They deny that Christ is fully God. Maybe he's a God on some lesser level. Uh, but if they say that, the trouble with it is that it's destructive of salvation because we need God to save us. Yeah. Yeah. Talking of not being well taught, what is modalism? 
Yeah, modalism is a heresy with respect to the Trinity that says, I hesitate to bring it out because <laughs> sometimes it gives people ideas. Oh, I never thought of that. So let me see whether I can, you know, pursue it. Don't pursue it, I'm saying to, you know, our listeners. Uh, but modalism says that there is only one God and so far so good. And that the three persons are actually three appearances of the same God. So what happens is that God in himself is one, but not three. But then when he appears, he appears first as a father in the Old Testament, and then as a son in the Gospels, and then as a spirit in, in the rest of church history. Mm -hmm. Well, the trouble with that is that the persons of the Trinity are not merely appearances. Certainly they do act in history. But when the Father acts in the Old Testament, he acts with the, the Son and the Spirit. So you can't do that um, in a coherent way. And again, when you come to the New Testament, you sometimes see all three persons distinguished, even in the same verse. For instance, in the baptism of Jesus, there's a voice from heaven saying, you are my Son in whom I'm well pleased. So who's the voice from? Well, it, this, it's identifying Jesus as the Son, then that's clearly the voice of the Father, right? So the Father is speaking the voice from heaven. The Son is there uh, in bodily, uh, in the body because he's taken on human nature, and the Spirit descends as a dove from heaven. So you have symbolic uh, presence, uh, symbolic representation of the Spirit in that same picture. Well, it, you're fooling yourself if you think it's all just one God with no differentiation. Yeah, yeah. What was Isaac Newton's view of the Trinity? Yeah, I don't know. I People say that he was an Arian, that he didn't believe in the deity of the Son. I'm not sure whether that's correct or not. Uh, I, and I th think, you know, I'm not, again, I'm not an expert here, but I think there is some difficulty because uh, he didn't speak very openly. If he was an Aryan, he didn't speak openly about it. Mm -hmm. What are some of the common misunderstandings when it comes to the Trinity? I think the most common thing in the Christian circles is to feel that it's irrelevant that we've been taught that God is Trinitarian, but it doesn't make any difference. Mm -hmm. And and my response to that would be, yes, it does make a difference. And my illustrations of prayer and adoption are two instances of that, right? Yeah. To understand yourself as a child of God, you need to understand that it's necessary that God is three persons, and that's the way, that's the only way you're going to keep, become a child of God. Or even with the reading of the Bible, when you read the Bible, you're reading the voice of the Father, and it's the Word of God, so it's a manifestation of the Son, who yeah. is the central content yeah. of the Bible, and then the Holy Spirit dwells in you to enable you to interpret rightly, to open your eyes, that you may see the true meaning of the Bible. So I want to say to the Christians, anytime you read the Bible, 
you're experiencing the Trinity. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. relevant to the total Christian life. It's yeah. relevant to your sanctification because the Holy Spirit has to indwell you and conform you to the image of Christ. Yeah. Right. And that is the purpose of God. So you, you, uh, the Trinity is, is relevant in terms of the common practices of the Christian life. Mm. It doesn't mean that we have to always be thinking consciously of the doctrine, but that God is present and he's present in his Trinitarian work. The other uh, misunderstanding, which uh, uh, I think is uh, common in is other religions. So uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, for instance, are a Trinitarian heresy who believe that Christ is not the true God. Right, so that's clearly a misunderstanding. Uh, I'm told that most Muslims have been taught that the Christians believe in three gods. Well, we do not. We believe in one God. <laughs> but we believe in one God who is mysteriously also three persons. And that's impossible to accept if you insist on conforming God to the standards of your limited mind. Mm. Some of the other religions, uh, for instance, in Hinduism, again, I'm not an expert, but you find multiple incarnations of, the, of one God, but God is mysteriously identified. He's the only real thing at all. So it's corrupt in, in a different kinds of way. Yeah. We're all divine in some sense, and there are mm -hmm. multiple manifestations the one God and the multiple gods of Hinduism. So it's affirming of a polytheistic practice. It's just a, a, a very different. But you could say, you can find uh, a triad of gods mm. in uh, some of the Hindu uh, thinking. So again, those, those are instances where I think what you're dealing with is that everybody knows God in the sense of Romans 1, yeah. as he manifests himself in the things he's made. Mm -hmm. But they all corrupt, apart from redemption, apart from Christ's work, everybody corrupts and suppresses that knowledge. And they make themselves idols. They make themselves false gods. So you're going to find things in other religions that are reacting to the fact that they know God is there, but then they corrupt it, right? So there are as many corruptions, in a sense, as there are false religions. Yeah. Yeah. Vern, can you remember what happened to you for you to become a lot clearer on the understanding of the Trinity? I can't remember well. <laughs> because I became a Christian at an early age, uh, as I say, when I was nine. Yeah. Or, or maybe even earlier, but it was a decisive uh, point of commitment when I was mm. nine. But the first big, deep work of theology that I read was Calvin's Institutes. It was not easy for me, yeah. really. Yeah. It's a, uh, uh, but there, uh, Calvin works out the doctrine of the Trinity in considerable and eloquent form. And so I, when I read that, I, it must have firmed up. I can't remember the details, but it must have firmed yeah. up what I would have been taught, you know, in at least a fragmentary way from the churches I was going to. 
and how old would you have been then then let's see uh, I would have been about I was in college so it was about uh, 19 or 20 years old yeah sure sure what have been some of the most helpful resources that you have used over the years to help you grow in your faith yeah you know I read the Bible <laughs> I read it a lot I think about it I try to have my prayers based on it um, and I think the Bible indicates that we have a we have a technical term that's been developed for it, the means of grace. The Bible indicates that there are means that God has established, regular means, by which we can approach him and grow in knowing him. And reading the Bible or listening to sermons, listening to the word preached, is one of those means. Prayer is one of the means. Christian fellowship is one of the means. Yeah. The sacraments, uh, the Lord's Supper and baptism are means. And those how can you do better than what God has established? Yeah. You know? yeah. So there's that. But may, maybe you're asking about, you know, other than those things, which I hope are obvious to our, our listeners, mm. what else besides that? Um, when I got in college is when I started reading around in theological literature, uh, beginning with kind of lay level material. And that helped a lot. And when I was in seminary, uh, my seminary professors, of course, if there's a one person that I would single out in terms of his writings, it would be J.I. Packer. Yeah. It was an early point when I read uh, Knowing God and when I read Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God and read uh, Fundamentalism and the Word of God. Mm. Uh, those were really influential in my life. And then, of course, when I went to seminary, I got a whole bunch of other yeah. <laughs> things, too. But but Packer, now he's gone to be with the Lord, but he, I think he would agree he was a, such a remarkable person that, that God gave to our church because he could express. He knew, he knew theology deeply. He expressed it vividly, winsomely, and also clearly mm -hmm. uh he he was uh, most of what he write, writes is very accessible yeah ordinary christian readers yeah if you could go out to dinner with one of the human authors of scripture who would you choose and what would you ask them yeah well i i think my favorite person is the apostle paul uh, I really identified with him strongly as a, a Christian growing, you know, into high school and college. But if when you ask the question the way you do, I want to go for the Apostle John. Because John not only was wrote several books of the, of the Bible, but he was an apostle who was with the Lord during his earthly life, mm -hmm. uh, which Paul was not. Yeah. So, you know, there's things that, you know, I would probably yeah. pepper him with questions uh, uh, about, although I think we have to be cautious there saying the Lord has given us in the scripture itself what we need to know. Yeah. yeah. Right? It isn't as if, oh, there are a lot of secret things yeah. that, that uh, would be tremendously valuable 
but unfortunately have been lost. No, God knew what he was doing. But still, if you ask me the question, you know, as a kind of playful question, yeah, I would, I would choose the Apostle John. Yeah. Vern, thank you so much for doing this interview. It's been an amazing time um, listening to you talk about this brilliant book that you've just written. Do you have any closing thoughts? And also, how can people follow what you are doing? Yeah, well, um, people should know that I have a website that I share with John Frame. It's a frame and then a hyphen poetress.org. So, and if they, if you, uh, internet search my name, that will pop up at near the top of the list probably. So this website, I, I add things to it as I write uh, things and they're published. Then I add more to it from time to time, but it's not an active site the way some blog sites. Yeah. Uh, John Frame and I are not really bloggers, but, but that shows my writings. And the other thing, I mean, we're getting to the point where there's more online learning taking place at Westminster Theological Seminary. I'm still actively teaching. I'm growing older, I admit, <laughs> but I'm actively teaching at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. So people can come by, they should feel free to visit, uh, but also Westminster Seminary is beginning to mount some online programs, including degree programs that, that I have a role in. Brilliant. Fern, thank you again for your time. I'm going to put the link to you and John Frame's website in the description below, as well as a link to this book that we've been discussing today. Fern, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Okay, well, thank you again for inviting me, and it's been a delight to be on your your podcast. Thank you.